when we um, got together and started meeting this last July in person for the first time, we were blessed by a dear family uh, to use their facility up on Green Bluff. And we always will remember what it was like to uh, be way up high on the mountain and all the glory that attended us, and then we had to come down here. <laughs> no, you can just see the hand of God to be up there and, and rejoicing and celebrating and, and meeting, uh, worshiping God every Sunday, and, and then his hand of providence to, to guide this facility to uh, a usefulness for us uh, in September of this, of this past year in the middle of a pandemic, uh, really just, boy, you know, you should be able to, to go with your, yourself and your kids and, and, and look back over your own history and recognize the hand of God and his providence in your life. And, and that is just one thing that I think, particularly our leadership, because of the conversations and discussions we've had and some of the folks that have been walking with us in this road for the better part of a year and a half now, um, just in, in this uh, seed plant of a church, to see the providence and hand of God. Uh, it's, it's important for me to talk about these things before I get into this lesson. Good morning to you, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. We're going to talk about God this morning and a worldview that honors Him. We're going to talk about the, the mysteries manifold grace. That's what's in your notes. So welcome to you. It's good to have all of you here with us this morning for worship. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll get started with our, our message this morning. Thank you for letting me reflect on, on just the providence of God and the joy uh, of what it is to be here. Well, as you, as you uh, well know, we are studying through Ephesians, expositing the text week by week, extracting the truths of God, mining them out, as it were. And we're working our way through Paul's parenthesis in chapter 3. It's in chapter 3 that Paul interrupts his own thought. He interrupted his own thought because... He had to fix a perceived credibility issue. And the credibility issue comes from this question, how can anyone trust a preacher of good news who himself is bound in chains? And that's where Paul finds himself as he writes this letter to the Ephesians. He's bound in chains in a Roman prison cell tied to a Roman soldier. And for two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has labored in this letter to the Ephesians to express to them the glory of God that is the good news of Jesus Christ to explain to them the salvation that comes in Christ alone because of God's sovereignty and God's power. He is serving up a God-glorifying worldview with Jesus Christ as the focus and the center. Everything, as you read in Ephesians 1 and 2, is in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. It's a worldview that says God is fully in control, that He is gracious and He is loving that he has a plan being worked out on a world stage, even a universal stage, in which he is having us participate for his glory. Where do we participate for God's glory in his plan? We participate in Christ. You can't participate in this plan for God's glory outside of Christ except that it be found in wrath. But when you find yourself participating in glory for, for God through Christ, by Christ, in Christ, it is filled with joy and peace and love, even the fellowship that attends this meeting this morning. So we participate in Christ, and you can't participate in Christ except that you understand that you are participating in the church. 
because Christ loves the church, he's building the church, and so should your focus be on the church. And you only participate in the church if God has adopted you, redeemed you, and given you salvation. And as a result of your salvation, God has equipped you then to do the good works which he prepared from beforehand that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2, verse 10. This, brothers and sisters, what I've just presented to you and what Paul has, I'm just reiterating his words, is a complete, it's a coherent, it's a consistent, and it's a comprehensive world view. There's nothing lacking and nothing missing in this worldview. It's God's worldview. It's based on his mind, his understanding, and his perfections. As a result, this worldview is remarkable. God takes what is a total mess that is your life, lived in sin and rebellion to him, and he turns you into an instrument for his glory so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. The transformation from wicked to glory, from evil to righteous, is a testament of the brilliance of God, much like you would see in the transformation of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Considering this makes me think of printing. I spent some time printing for a while. Never would you take a piece of ripped, wrinkled, stained, oily, dark black paper and run it through a printer and believe that it would produce a brilliant, vibrant, full-color image. Of course you wouldn't. Not if you're looking for brilliance and vibrance. To his glory, God works only with oily, dark, ripped, stained, broken sheets of paper, faulty, wicked, sinful, flawed canvases. God's worldview transforms the sin-stained, that's you, into holy saints. Even joy-filled, suffering servants, as we find Paul in the text. The servants, then, are the ones who gather in the church. The church collectively testifies of Jesus Christ as God's Son, and this is all part of God's perfect plan. In this arrangement, the multifaceted wisdom and grace of God are displayed. It makes perfect sense to God and to Paul. And the question before you this morning is, does that worldview make sense to you? Worldview is my concern for us this morning. Corrupt worldviews are all around you. They're next door. They're in false religions. But even more so, deceptively, false worldviews masquerade as science and dominate our society. There is no worldview that has captured and corrupted the hearts of humanity more profoundly and satanically than Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Glenn Gayher a psychologist writing for Psychology Today in December of 2017 says this glowingly, flowerly, lovingly of Charles Darwin's theory. He says, when Charles Darwin revealed his perspective on the nature of life in 1859, the world of human ideas changed immediately. To my mind, he says, Darwin's view of life is nothing short of inspiring. You might ask, Glenn, why, Glenn? Why is that the case? Tell me why it's so inspiring to you. And he'd tell you, evolution connects humans with the entirety of life. Want to know what a human is? The concept of evolution provides the answer. Evolution helps us understand our morphology, why our bodies are as they are. Evolution helps us understand our psychology, why we behave the way that we do. And evolution helps us understand our relationship to the myriad of other life forms that populate our planet. Evolution is, in short, evolution, in short, he says, explains what it means to be human. He goes further saying, if you really want to appreciate life and our place in it, brush up on your evolution. There is grandeur in this view of life. One year earlier, in 2016, Austin Anderson, 
who is a supporter of Darwinian evolution, wrote an article in Philosophy of the Many titled, The Dark Side of Darwinism, in which he concluded this, quote, our contemporary reverence for Darwin's gentlemanliness and the pure scientific brilliance of his theories is an overly optimistic illusion that shatters upon a closer look at his publications. Whoa, Mr. Anderson. Why would you say such hurtful things about Charles Darwin's theories of evolution and his worldview that he presents? Because Mr. Anderson actually took a look at what Darwin's works say, and he was extremely alarmed. Mr. Anderson notes from reading on the origin of species from Darwin and the descent of man from Darwin, he says that it becomes clear that Darwin considers every population that is not white and European to be savages. As a result, Darwin justifies violent imperialism and colonization to supplant those barbarous nations, even suggesting that the extermination of non-white races is a natural consequence of white Europeans being a superior and more successful race. After all, for Darwin, Africans and Australians are more closely related to apes than Europeans, and now the Western nations of Europe have immeasurably surpassed their former savage progenitors and stand at the summit of civilization. What I just said to you was that Charles Darwin and his theory is extremely white supremacist to the nth degree. And I ask you this, in the world in which we live, where are you, cancel culture? Where are you, in the halls of higher education, canceling those who would teach such radical white supremacist ideologies? How is it the case that nearly every American institution of education teaches Darwinian evolutionary theory as fact? Does Darwin's racism compromise the evolutionary worldview that he presents? Brothers and sisters, how can it not? Absolutely it does. How can any person with a high melanin count, i.e. someone who's black or brown or red, how can they hold fast to a worldview that says, you came from apes? But thankfully, your race evolved and gave birth to white people who are superior to you and as a result need to enslave you and even further maybe just exterminate you. How could you hold to that? I present Darwin evolution to you as a contrast to the worldview that Paul is explaining to us in Ephesians, especially in light of what we see in chapters 2 and 3, where Jew and Gentile are said to have been made by God into one new man in Christ. I, I hope you can understand when I say that the unity and the union that I experience with all of humanity. I believe you experience that as well because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And does the Holy Spirit care about how much melanin you have? Is he able to overcome all of life to reconcile you and make you one in Christ? I would believe so. This is the worldview that we need to hold on to that he presents Jew and Gentile into one new man in Christ. It says the Gentiles in, in chapters 2 and 3 that they're fellow heirs in one body 
with the Jews. This is the biggest division that ever was known on the face of the earth because it's a division that God made, the Jew and Gentile division. This other division about races, that's man-made and it's trash. And you need to do away with it in your mind. We're one new man in Christ. Darwin hated Christ and Christ's ideas. Paul is a joy-filled slave of Christ who received God's grace. And as a result, we know, or he knows, Paul does, his job in life is to preach then. Then preach, Paul. Preach the excellencies of Christ. And by doing so, illuminate the manifold wisdom of God so that others will believe, even those from way different races, way different nationalities, way different ethnicities than you, and be confident that Jesus, he died in your place. Regardless of who you are or where you came from, he died in your place and he resurrected to heaven forever. And that's your eternal hope as well. And don't lose heart then at all the craziness and the chaos and the suffering and the wicked and rampant ideas of fools that are in this world. Have this worldview. This is a biblical worldview. Paul cannot leave this interruption, this parenthesis in his thought in chapter 3 without explaining the manifold grace of God which shows up in a worldview, the only worldview worth your time. This is what we read in the text and study this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I want you to join with me in reading this, but I want to read the whole parenthesis, the whole interruption of thought from verse 1 to 13, and we'll circle back and study verses 8 through 13, and we'll look at this. We'll look at the mysteries, multicolored grace. That's what we'll see this morning. The mysteries multicolored, the manifold grace of God. He says, Paul does, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I had wrote before in brief, which was in chapter 1. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insights into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ through the gospel of which I became and was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of God's power. To me... The very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, yes, through the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, concluding his parenthesis, therefore, then I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Well, he was supposed to turn the prayer to, to turn to prayer in, in chapter 3, at the end of verse 1, by saying, I bow my knees before the Father, as you see in verse 14. But the thought of his comment about being a prisoner of Christ, it just stuck in him. How will they trust my message, my prayer, when I'm suffering in a jail cell in Rome? He felt a, a gospel hypocrisy. And so instead of glossing over that, he took time to explain it. And we've studied through that explanation. He interrupted himself, which is most clearly seen in the if-then proposition of chapter 3, verse 2. 
where he says, if you have heard of my sufferings, and you would ask then, where is the then portion of this interruption? It's in verse 13, when he says effectively, then I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations. He shares in this interruption that his suffering is the result of God's grace. You talk about an enigma, a mystery, a conundrum. Is your suffering God's grace to you? Is your suffering God? It was for him. In grace, God gave him a stewardship. In grace, God gave him revelation. In grace, God made him know the mysteries of Christ. It was in grace that God had given him a gift, a gift of God's power, he says in verse 7. And consider the mystery that God had allowed him to be revealed. That was all grace. Yes, God had hidden a mystery in plain sight from all the nations, and now, in grace, he revealed it even to Paul, a murderer of Christians. In grace, God made Gentiles fellow members of the body of Christ with the Jews. Christ has Paul suffering in Rome for this message. There is no credibility issue here. Christ suffered for this message. There's no credibility issue at all. There's no gospel hypocrisy. Humanity hates God, hates Christ, and as a result of the truth of the righteousness of God coming through the person of Christ and the message going out, being heralded, heralded, there will be persecution. Ask James Coates, pastor in Edmonton, for whom we pray. You see, for Paul, the mystery is grace. The Gentile union is grace. The stewardship is grace. And the suffering that attends the preaching of the mystery of Christ is grace as well. It's grace to be punished. It's grace to receive whippings. It's grace to be shackled. It's a package deal. And when you get graced by God, you get knowledge. You get salvation. You get union. You get a stewardship. You get eternal life. You get time-bound suffering, which is to say your suffering only lasts while you yet live. And then your suffering turns into eternal bliss in God's presence forever. As we enjoy glorifying Him forever, this is the worldview that's set before us. Paul's worldview is a complete worldview. It's a worldview that is so saturated in the mind of God and in the grace of God. And his desire is to share the manifold grace and wisdom of God in this worldview. We see in our text today, as Paul illuminates this worldview, he also illuminates three fruits of God's grace that embolden our confidence in a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying worldview. Let me say that again. You know where we're going. Paul illuminates in the text three fruits of God's grace. That's what we're looking at. Three fruits of God's grace that embolden our confidence in a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying worldview. You need a worldview that is God-glorifying and Christ-exalting. You'll get it in the text today. Look at grace. Look at grace. Let me show you grace. Let Paul show us grace from the text, these three fruits. First fruit is you see grace produces the humbled steward. Grace then shows the unveiled wisdom. And we see from grace, the third fruit, the granted access. The humbled steward, the unveiled wisdom, and the granted access. And as you can so clearly see from the outline, and so bound up in unity that I am, I gave you hug two weeks in a row. You see that? You're thankful for that, I know. This will serve as our outline for this morning as we look at the three fruits of God's grace. If you have this worldview and you see the fruits of God's grace that Paul describes here, then you also 
will not lose heart at the thought of suffering for Christ, but rather you will rejoice in it. And that's what Paul's asking to be done here. Let's turn to point number one in your notes, the first fruit of God's grace, the humbled steward, the humbled steward. Where do we see humility? And how is humility the product of grace? We'll read again with me verses 8 and 9 from chapter 3, and let's identify the fruit of grace that is a humbled steward. Paul says to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Where is humility? First, we see humility in Paul's superlative comparison. He calls himself the very least of all the saints. As compared to all the saints, he's the least. He has taken a superlative adjective and is creating a new use for this word by way of comparison. Effectively, he's made up a word. He's saying, I'm the leaster. Clinton Arnold says the end result is an emphatic pronouncement of his unworthiness, which we just sang about, to be a recipient of God's favor. That's what his... That's what his superlative comparison is all about. He's an unworthy recipient of God's favor. Favor is the very definition of grace. Grace is defined by the word favor. Paul feels unworthy to have received God's grace. How on earth was it ever applied to him? As I say those words, I'm sure that many of you are are thinking that very same thought. How on earth was God's grace ever applied to me? Why did that happen? This is humility. Paul had great reason for this depth of humility. Prior to his conversion, which Luke records in Acts chapter 9, Paul was a persecutor and a murderer of Christians. Paul was a pride-filled Roman and a Jew and a racist at that, who had full confidence in his ability, his education, his ethnicity. As a result, he took great pride in ending Christianity any way that he could, including imprisoning and killing Christians until that glorious day, that glorious day on the road to Damascus. He was headed to persecute and kill more Christians, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And jarringly, the voice of Jesus interrupted Paul's life, unwelcomed as it was, rebuking Paul with this famous question, Saul, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me in Acts chapter 9 verse 4? Saul was made to humble himself before Christ on that day, which put the maximum grace of God on display in this man's life. God gave grace and salvation to a murderer, calling him to his team, calling him to apostleship. I'm not sure how many of you have coached or or you've played on athletic teams. Do you choose the enemy to be your captain? You don't. You want someone who's with your program. Do you you choose the most vile? Do you choose the least? How many of you were the last ones picked? Don't raise your hand. You know the feeling. Oh, okay, put it down. I didn't see, I didn't see. This is what Paul is saying. Of of, of all that should have been picked, I, I should have never been drafted onto this team, especially not made an apostle. I'm too wicked. It stuck with Paul. He remembered it so well. His former manner of life being run over and trampled then by the grace of God. He says in Corinthians, 
15.9, in chapter, 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. At the end of his life, during his second imprisonment in Rome, facing death, he declares to Timothy, his protege, in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement, he says, a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. He knows this well, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Paul was humbled by the grace of God. He says here in the text in verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. And we need to look at the verb, what happened, what, what's going on, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. This, this given, this given grace, we, we see here a passive verb. And it must be a passive because grace is always given. It's not something that you strive for. Grace is never something that you earn. It's never something you demand. Grace is unmerited favor. It is not a payment to you for seeking God. Rather, grace is getting from God the very opposite of what you deserve. That's what grace is. When you accurately know grace, then you can't help but understand humility, which is why the gospel is repent and believe. Because if God crushes you first and, and causes you to understand the grace that's washed over you and it produces humility, from humility comes a, a look at your sinfulness and the reason to go to God then next is to repent to him for the massive sinfulness that he just forgave you for. The gospel is repent and believe. Paul knew this well. Paul was perfectly humbled by grace, which made him a great steward of the mystery of Christ. How was he a great steward of the mystery of Christ? Well, Paul knew his stewardship. He knew the jobs that were given to him, the jobs for Jesus, you could say. He knew his work in the body of Christ. You see it in the text next. He says his job is to preach, and his audience he knows. He knows it well. It's the Gentiles. I've got to take this to the Gentiles We've got to reach out to the other people, the people that were cut off. We've got to pull them in. And the message to preach to the Gentiles is the unfathomable riches of Christ. Can you imagine what a joy this would have been to, to Paul? And, and what, what did it take to receive the knowledge of the unfathomable riches of Christ? He's describing it like that. How did he get that? Who gave that to him? He spent time with Jesus. Paul is so excited about preaching the riches of Christ, he makes up a word here. The word unfathomable is found nowhere else in Greek. It's built on the word used for tracking footprints. Christ's riches are untraceable, he's trying to say. You're unable to search them out. You can't track them down like a dog. He's far higher than you. His ways are far bigger than you. His riches are far better than anything you'll ever understand. And again, this grace to Paul, he understands it. How did he end up with this job? He got two of them. What's his second job? He got these jobs by the grace of God. His second job, he knows well. God told him that his job is to illuminate this season, this dispensation of God's hidden mystery. No longer shall the Gentiles and Jews know racial hatred toward one another. No longer shall they know segregation from one another. No longer shall any humanity know division based off of color or ethnicity. No longer, not in Christ. Not going to happen. And a new season of management has come. Paul is the administrator, shining the light of the gospel, sharing the mystery. By knowing and doing his work, his two jobs for Jesus, Paul proves grace had humbled him. This is the first fruit of grace. Grace humbles those who hate God. God's grace can go to the worst of the worst and cause humility, love, and obedience to God's eternal plan, even God getting you to do the good works that he prepared from beforehand that you should walk in them. Paul's wickedness, 
his wisdom, his ways, and his worldview were all radically changed by God's grace. Is that the same for you, brothers and sisters? Are you humbled? What would others say about you? Can we ask your wife? No, no, answer me. No. <laughs> can we ask your kids? Kids, can we ask your parents? Have you been humbled? If you truly have received God's grace, do you know your jobs for Jesus? Do you do them? How do you define grace? Do you define it accurately? Has God's grace affected you and how? The most hated man in America at this time is former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. He is a police officer who was recorded this past summer pressing his knee into the back, neck, and head of George Floyd, which set a whole world of protests and riots in motion. He's been charged with second-degree murder. His trial is underway, and the jury will be seated here shortly. And here's the question for you. Suppose he's found guilty. Would you visit Derek Chauvin in prison and share the grace of Jesus Christ with him? Is God's grace big enough to save Derek Chauvin? And here's a bigger question for you. What if Derek Chauvin is found innocent? What if it's determined that he acted entirely within the limits of his training and he's set free? Shall salvation in Christ be shared with public enemy number one? Can former officer Chauvin be graced and made a humble steward like Paul? Our job is not to deselect targets for the gospel. Everyone needs to hear and repent and believe. That's the gospel. Everyone needs to hear that. God's grace was determined in eternity past. All it needs is humble stewards to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to all men. And in the fullness of his wisdom, God will apply his grace and salvation as he desires on his time frame, not yours. On this point, God's wisdom, we move to point number two in your notes. God's grace humbled the steward. That's what we see. God's grace humbled the steward. Second, we see the fruit of God's grace in the unveiled wisdom. Point number two in your notes, the unveiled wisdom. God's grace would not allow for the mystery of Christ to be hidden forever. The giving of God's grace demanded, then, the unveiling of God's wisdom. That is the case that in years past, brides would wear a veil to their wedding that covered the whole of their head and their face as well as they passed by friends and family and headed down the aisle to the altar to be married to their husbands. Ceremonially and symbolically, the veil hid the full radiance and beauty of the bride until she could be revealed at the appointed time and by the appointed unveiler, usually her father, to the appointed man, her husband. Veiling, then we see, has a purpose. And the timing and the method and the audience of the unveiling are purposeful and intentional as well. Such is the case with the unveiling of God's manifold wisdom. Certainly in our text, you're going to see timing and you're going to see method and you're going to see audience for the unveiling of wisdom. But more importantly, you're going to see eternal purpose. And with eternal purpose, you must understand that you are staring at a God-glorifying worldview. Eternal purpose, worldview. Look for them now as we read the text, unveiling, timing, method, audience, and worldview. As we read the text again from verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul says, Grace was given and the mystery illuminated, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is a God-glorifying worldview in these two verses. This is a God-glorifying worldview. And let's take time then to fully understand and explain it. 
there's four aspects of unveiling that we need to walk through. The first one, let's consider the unveiling itself. Unveiling is to uncover, to disclose, to reveal or expose. Here, make known. Interestingly, in Paul's Greek, he puts the subject of the unveiling at the end of the sentence, calling attention to the manifold wisdom of God. But in your translation, it's likely at the front of the sentence, the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold is a special word in the Greek, polupoikolos. It means multifaceted, multicolored, multi-splendid. And you might think of it in the sense of light being refracted through a diamond. This is the word used in Genesis 37 in the Greek Septuagint for Joseph's coat of many colors. It is used to describe works of beauty, flowers, crowns, embroidery. And here in the text, the multifaceted wisdom of God. God's wisdom is seen by all of creation, isn't it? In what we observe and see outside in creation itself, in the dexterity of the human fingers, in the intricacies of the human eye, in, in the details that attend our hearing. All of humanity can see God's wisdom in all that was created, and yet there is still much more of God's wisdom that is hidden. The glory in the text is that now, now, at this appointed time, God's wisdom has been made known in a special way. Second, we see the second aspect of the unveiling. We see the timing of the unveiling. What timing did God have in mind? Now. At this appointed time, in this season, Paul is writing within 30 years of the death of Christ. It's this season, the aftermath of the death of Christ, it is this season that God also, not only is revealing this mystery, but He gives the Holy Spirit and because of the giving of the Holy Spirit, he starts to build his church. There's a new dispensation that's underway for all of humanity. At the cross, at Pentecost, at the building of the church, brothers and sisters, we live 2,000 years in the light of the cross of Christ and all of the apostolic revelation that creates for us his certain, the certainty of Christ's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You hold that certainty in your hand when you read the Bible, the New Testament. We have it. The Word of God, we read it, and we are empowered for righteousness by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the Holy Spirit who helps us gather together, even today, into the church of Jesus Christ, which brings us to God's method, His method of the unveiling, His method of the revealing. Third, we see the method of the unveiling. What is God's method for unveiling His wisdom? In wisdom, God has chosen to unveil His wisdom through the church. Church is the word ecclesia in the text which means assembly, congregation, or gathered ones. Ecclesia is a compound word that literally means the called out ones. We have been called out of darkness into the marvelous and glorious light of Christ. As a result, we gather. And in our gathering, in our togetherness, in the practice of the one another's that Christ calls us to through the Scriptures, we, brothers and sisters, become the face the brilliance, the splendor of the manifold wisdom of God. That's what the text says. That's what the church is. That's who we are together as brothers and sisters in Community Bible Church. Kent Hughes says, Our text calls us to recognize and revere the imminence and the centrality of the church. I sure hope, brothers and sisters, with all of the COVID realities and the challenges of this past year, that this fact is not lost on you. Eternal wisdom attends this fellowship. Righteousness attends it. Do you, you know what you're doing when you're sitting here right now? 
you're doing the righteousness of God. Eternal wisdom is with you in what you're doing today. Glory attends this fellowship. The glory of God is here in this fellowship. You know that, right? That's why you're here. That's why you came, the glory of God. It's here. Certainly, the gathering of the church is for God, and it is for us, but the text reveals another audience as well, and so we see fourth, this fourth aspect of the unveiling, the audience of the unveiling. The wisdom of God is made known through the church for who? The text says the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What are we dealing with here? Angels, the hosts of heaven, the fallen and the pure. John MacArthur says, God has brought the church into being for the purpose of manifesting his great wisdom before the angels, both holy and unholy, which is a slap in the face to Satan because he wanted to do everything he could to stop this from happening. Satan doesn't want the church to meet. Who's lined up with Satan? John McKay says, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for the angels. Welcome to class. This is an incredibly important thought to place into your worldview. The angels are watching. And it's important to God that the angels are watching. And it's important to God that the church reveal His wisdom, which gets right down into our actual gathering together and the actual worship that you sing and the actual intent of your heart as you sit and listen to God's Word being communicated to you, and then the actual obedience that you deliver to God in your life when you leave. The best thing you can do for me is not pat me on the back and say, Pastor Oliver, you're a great preacher, great preacher, thank you so much. The best thing you can do for me is let this message stir up in your heart, go home, and let it affect the way that you handle your kids. Let it affect the way that you deal with your wife, and let it affect your submission to your husband. That's the best way to respond to the message preached this message is for the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places to see how human beings, sinful as you are, respond to what God is doing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, as we had discussed just weeks past, Paul prays for us to know the surpassing greatness of God's power. Verse 20 of chapter 1 says this, if you want to look at it. He says, which God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There they are, the angels, verse 21 of the text of chapter 1. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church. There's our congregation right there in the text. Which is his body, the church is. The fullness of him who fills all in all. We are Christ's fullness. Praise God. How awesome is that for a worldview? You see it again in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Turn there. Ephesians 6, 12. Read this text with me. Paul is laboring to tell us that the battle we face in this life are bigger than the physical realities that you contend with. It's not about your broken arm. It's not about the broken window at the house. It's not about your stubbed toe last night. There's bigger realities. He warns us of the larger battle in which the church and each individual believer are engaged with fallen angels and demonic powers and spiritual forces of wickedness. He says in 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, Yes, it is the case our, spiritual ba- our battle is with spiritual forces. Yes, the witness of the church is for angels 
who are called the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Why? Why? Why the physical battles, Lord? That's bad enough sometimes. Why the church battles? Why the spiritual battles? Why all these battles that attend our lives? Why? Turn back to chapter 3, verse 11. Why all these battles? All of these realities, Paul says. All of the trouble, all of the pain, all of the battles are in accordance with, verse 11, are in accordance with, they match up to, they're right in line with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I read that text to you, and as I study this text this week, it's at this point that there should be silence. It's at this point that all the feet should stop moving and all the hands lay still and all the mouths remain closed. Because Paul is demanding attention, the attention of the whole universe, to be fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God did the unthinkable. What did he carry out in Christ Jesus our Lord? On the cross of Christ, he imputed the sins of all those who would believe onto Jesus. The same way that hot water receives tea is the same way that God imputed our sins onto Jesus. And then he poured out the full weight of his wrath onto his innocent son. Sin must be paid for in blood. Christ paid that price, and God poured his wrath on him. That's what he's saying in the text. In accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out on Christ Jesus our Lord. Skeptics call this divine child abuse. We call this the glory of God. This is the salvation of God, and this is the wisdom of God. Allow me to paint the picture for you, for the reason why. Why? Why did it have to come to this? Let me give you the full worldview of God perspective. God is in eternity past, outside of time entirely, enjoying himself, fully satisfied enjoying all the perfection that it is of His Trinitarian oneness, His unity with Father, Son, and Spirit, completely enjoying their essence and their nature together. And in His perfection, God is thinking of His glory and how to expand His glory because perfection is worth sharing and sharing is going to demand creation. And so, in His creative mind, God sketched out people in a book that he would have with him forever in heaven. He wrote the book of life. He wrote down all the names of those that he would enjoy and get glory from and give his glory to and know them personally, even sharing his spirit 
to live inside of them. These people on whom he would place his glory would be made in his image and according to his likeness. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God created them, male and female. And in the course of creation, prior to making man, God made the angels as well. Free will beings, made not after his image and not after his likeness, not forgivable, not redeemable, but powerful, beautiful, and dominating the heavenly realm. These angels must remain perfect to be in God's presence. Rebellion from any one of them will endure God's wrath instantaneously. One angel didn't like God's creation. And he thought that he would find a way to steal God's glory. He was punished by God for his rebellion, and a third of the angels fell from grace with him. Seething with rage against God, Satan sought vengeance and found a target, the pinnacle of God's creation, Adam and Eve. He attacked with cunning and stealth, undermining the word of God. And we all know the result as we read the fall of man in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve chose rebellion with Satan and plunged all of humanity into sin. Sin that becomes part of our nature. Part of our nature now that makes us unable to be in the presence of God eternally. And immediately your mind goes, what about the book? They're all sinful. They all hate God. That's how they start. What about the book? How are you going to reconcile this? How can it be fixed? What about the people of God that you had chosen from before creation to be with you forever, glorifying yourself in them? How could you ever, God, redeem them? They're born rebels, sin-filled, and enemies of yours. What could possibly pay for all of their sins and afford them the righteousness required to stand in your presence eternally and forever? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God himself must redeem the ones that he had chosen. The Son of God left the glory, comfort, splendor of heaven and humbled himself and took on flesh. He lived a perfect life and just as God planned along this specific and precise timing that God planned it, his innocence in this life was nailed to a cross. Pastor Mike Riccardi told me this one time, and he told it to a bunch of men at Shepherd's Conference, and I'll never forget it. He said, Jesus took names to that cross. This was God's eternal purpose in Christ. Where Satan will not be humbled and redeemed, God will give his grace and humble and redeem all those whose names he had written in the book of life. That's a complete worldview, friend. And I ask you this morning, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? There's no way for me to know other than the proof that you give with the confession of your mouth and the deeds that you do in this life. There's no way for me to know that. We can't lift up shirt coattails and see chosen stamped on your back. Some people have said wearing a tie in church, that's the proof of salvation. It's not. It's funny to make jokes of it, but it's not. 
This is a worldview that makes sense. Let me tell you why. It's a worldview that makes sense because it speaks to your heart. You need grace because you know you're a sinner. It speaks to your mind because any intellectual honesty says that Jesus actually was a man who was raised from the dead, that he was spoken of, recorded, and resurrected. History attests to him. The year is 2021 after his death. This is a worldview that speaks to your eternality. You know you will face God when you die, and then will come the judgment. This is a worldview that speaks to your purpose in this life. Your job, you were born, you were created in the image and likeness of God to return glory to Him with your mouth, with your words, and with your thoughts. He gets glory on His terms, not yours. Where does glorifying God begin? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is the baseline. It's the starting point. It's the access point to relationship with God, which brings us to point number three in your notes, the third fruit of God's grace. Number three, the granted access. Number three, the granted access. Last week, I presented to you John Patton, the Scottish missionary of the 19th century who invested his life in the New Hebrides Islands off the northeast coast of Australia. The Lord applied grace to Patton's life Early on in his life, he was raised in a Reformed Presbyterian home. They walked four miles one way to church and used the time to discuss the sermon and share the glory of God. Patton wanted to go into ministry so bad that he took a low-paying job and went to seminary. And when money was tight, sometimes he would go without food and without school. And yet through it all, his diligent study, before he was sent off to go to the New Hebrides Islands, he was preaching to over 500 souls every week. And someone would say, well, why leave such a successful ministry? Why take off to the other side of the world to preach to the cannibals of the New Hebrides, this crazy gospel and this wild worldview? Why would you do that? They're not going to believe you. They're not going to listen to that. Because Patton's single purpose was to become qualified as a preacher of the gospel of Christ, that's why, and to be owned and used by him for the salvation of perishing men. Did God use John Patton to save the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands just off the northeast shore of Australia? Was God so gracious as to grant access to the mystery of Christ to the cannibals of the New Hebrides by a Scotsman? Does God use Scotsmen? Yes, he does. At the end of 15 long years, which was his second stay out there on the islands, he was on the island of Anawa, and Patton could report, as I told you last week, 12,000 saved. 12,000 confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And 133 of those were sent as missionaries. That's 12,000 names in the book of life, whom God redeemed through the efforts of a humbled servant. These are 12,000 names that God granted access to eternal life and will share in eternity with God forever, people who used to eat other human beings. How is access granted? The answer is in our text. Let's read the text together from verses 12 and 13. Paul says, God carried out his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord, And I love that he says, our Lord. That's our personal Lord. That's our Lord. He's ours. And he says in verse 12, in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, he says in verse 13, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Access to God is granted through faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. Faith is belief. Faith is belief. It's like putting your trust in a parachute, not just that you would put it on your back and ride in a plane with it on, but you actually, at 30,000 feet, jump out of the plane and then pull the ripcord. That's trust. That's trust. Faith is believing all of God's revealed truth about Jesus Christ, about His Son. 
because God's so proud of His Son and all they accomplished for their glory and the salvation that they get to apply to men through the Holy Spirit. And so in love, God calls out to the whole world, access is granted to all if you will believe in Jesus. That's the message. And you can say that to anybody and you must say it to everybody. Friend, this is the call in your life today. Believe. Access to God is granted in faith in Christ. And for those who believe, the message affords us boldness. We have confident access in God. The fullness of certainty is in this message because it's God's message. As a result, when we're suffering trials and tribulations, when persecutions come, we don't lose heart. We understand that God is so powerful that he can use sufferings and use persecutions. That's what Paul is saying here at the close of his interruption, of his parenthesis. He says, my sufferings are part of the gospel of God's grace. Because in my sufferings, more will come to know the mystery of Christ. They will have faith in Christ and know the manifold wisdom of God. Don't lose heart then. Don't lose heart. My suffering is for glory. It's even for your glory. It's for your glory. The suffering of John Patton was for the glory of the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. He lost a wife and five children on those islands while he stayed there and several missionary friends on those islands as well. And those islanders, they must recognize that John Patton's suffering was for their glory. You know, other people have come to recognize John Patton's work as well. Let me give you the name of one of them, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin visited the the islands of the New Hebrides on his ship, the Beagle. He said after visiting there, I don't believe in God, but if I did, it would be because of what I've seen happen as a result of John G. Patton's preaching the gospel at the New Hebrides Islands. Paul's interruption must end with the fruit of God's grace and God's worldview, which we hold with confidence. That is what we've seen in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13. Paul illuminated the fruit of God's grace, showing us that grace makes humble stewards, that grace unveils God's wisdom, and that grace grants access through faith in Christ. How do you respond to these truths? First, believe in God. Believe in God. Have and hold a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting worldview that makes sense of all the craziness of our times. Second, love the local church and find ways to serve in it. Third, be humbled and be a steward. Be humbled and be a steward by this message a steward, a servant that knows his job. And fourth, know grace, know grace. Know that grace is given. There's grandeur in this worldview. It's God's worldview. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we marvel at the cross of Christ. When you take us there and you set us before the cross of Christ, we can see what you planned. How you wrote our names in eternity past and and how you have so meticulously chosen away a path to reconcile us to you. This is the fullness of grace. Why did you save? How did you have us in mind? It is certainly nothing in us. It's all of you. What a glorious worldview. What great grace. We look forward to living our whole lives knowing more about the unsearchable riches of Christ and about your grace, which is so freely given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.